There are days that you may never forget. Some of you, I'm sure, have those days. I certainly uh, have have some of those days. But, uh, well, at least, I, I don't know. Do, do you remember where you were and what you were doing on January 28, 1986? Now, some of you are going to laugh because some of you weren't even born, right? But uh, those of you who were alive at that time, I certainly remember where I was on January 28, 1986. In fact, I remember I was in school, and I remember my teacher brought a, a television set into our uh, classroom. You might ask, well, why did, why did she do that? Well, because on that particular morning, the space shuttle Challenger uh, blew up. You'll see a picture of uh, the space shuttle Challenger. It was a it was a it was a national disaster, and it was televised all around the world. And it happened on January 28, 1986. That's what it looked like when it was taking off. And so, what happened? Why did it blow up? Well, the space shuttle Challenger, as it was going up, and it was about 73 seconds into its flight, it actually broke up, and it ended up leading to the death of the seven crew members. They all died. As you can see, those are pictures. The spacecraft disintegrated over the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, You probably know a lot of the flights, they took off from the state of Florida, right next to the Atlantic Ocean there. And it was uh, local time, and there in Florida, it was 11.38 in the morning. You say, well, how did this, this disaster happen? Well... The disintegration of the vehicle actually began, they found out, as a result of a, uh, an O-ring. Just a little little thing, a little thing. An O-ring seal in the solid rocket booster failed. You can see a picture. There are little O-rings. Uh, that little green part that the arrow is pointing to is the O-ring. Well, as a result of the O-ring failure, then it, then it ended up causing a, a, a breach in the solid rocket booster joint. The whole joint ended up... Um, failing, and that eventually allowed the, uh, the the very pressurized hot gas to escape, and it ended up reaching the outside, and and then everything from there just uh, got worse and worse, and that eventually led to the structural failure of one of the external tanks, and then as a result of that, well, then things started spinning out of control, and because the space shuttle was just going so fast. At that point, it was, remember, 73 seconds into the flight. Just going so fast, it wasn't meant to be spinning the way it was, and so it just everything just flew apart. The aerodynamic forces ended up breaking the space shuttle into uh, all little pieces. You can see in the picture here. Uh, they're trying to identify the various pieces. And so it was a tragic loss. And as a, uh, a young boy, I remember seeing the picture shortly after this had happened. It was all over the news, and... And so they were showing this in my school. And, and I remember exactly where I was. I couldn't have told you the exact date, but I remember, I remember seeing that as a young child thinking, wow, that's amazing. Uh, it's sad. It was, it's sad because uh, it was a tragic loss for the families, for the nation, for the whole space program. It was a tragic loss. And it, it, reminded, it reminded me at that time and has continued to remind me that life is fragile and fleeting. In one brief moment, all the work 
that had gone into this particular liftoff and what was going to happen out there in space and on the International Space Station, all the work and the effort and the, the millions of dollars that was spent, it was just gone in one moment. And that is the message, well, one of the messages at least, that Jesus is trying to help us to understand here in the, in the Olivet Discourse. So Matthew 24 and 25, known as the Olivet Discourse, because if you look at the first few verses, he's, he's on the Mount of Olives on the east of Jerusalem. He's teaching his disciples. You remember the context was the disciples asked him uh, a few questions. You'll see those in verse 3, Matthew 24, verse 3. And so here's Jesus sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So Jesus takes these two chapters to teach uh, and, and sort of answer these questions. And so we see that, that life as we know it's going to come to an end. Okay, Life, life is not you know, just going to go on as, as it always has been. So all history is going to come to a climactic finale when Jesus returns. And we look forward to the day when Jesus will return everything back to, to, to paradise, if you will. Eventually, the, the present earth and, and the heavens will be destroyed. And Jesus will make a new heaven and a new earth. And uh, we'll live without sin and perfect fellowship with, with Jesus Christ forever. But when Jesus... Well, people ask, well, when will King Jesus return? I mean, the disciples were wondering that. People have often asked that. What we don't know is, is the short answer. Hopefully you understand that. But I can't help but wonder that Jesus' return is close. Now, I'm not going to set dates, and we shouldn't set dates, but I just, I just got that feeling in my bones, so to speak. You know what I mean? You probably feel that way, too. As time goes on, it just... We just seems just we are we're we're getting closer to the return of Jesus Christ. We don't know exact time though, and, but the Bible does tell us there is one who does know. Verse thirty six, Matthew twenty four, verse thirty six tells us who that is. It's interesting. Look at this. It says, "But concerning that day and hour, the day and hour of Jesus Christ's return, it says no one knows." Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. This is kind of the theme of this particular section. We see it's only God the Father knows the time. Uh, that you might be amazed. You might not be amazed by the fact that the angels of heaven don't know, but I don't know about you, but I've often looked at this and said, wow, it, it includes the Son. That's Jesus Christ. You, you mean Jesus Christ? There is actually something Jesus doesn't know? Have you ever wondered about that? Well, <laughs> I, I remember talking to a uh, Jehovah's Witness. I was witnessing to uh, my workmate who was a Jehovah's Witness one time, and, and he actually used this amongst other passages in the Bible to show me, hey, see, see, there's Jesus, Jesus can't be God. And so... Some people use this and other verses like this to say Jesus is not God. So what's, what's the explanation? Because the Bible clearly says that God knows all things. Well, you need to understand something. Okay, In the beginning, 
before Jesus became a man, of course, Jesus was like God the Father. He was spirit. John 4, 24 says God is a spirit. And so Jesus became a man. And then we see that, that he was then fully God as well as fully man. So he had two natures. And by the way, those two natures will always be with Jesus for all eternity. But what we see Jesus doing when he became a man is he, he's voluntarily restricting the use of certain divine attributes when he became flesh. And the Bible tells us this in places like Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. And it says that, that although Jesus existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, in, put it in my own words, he didn't hold on to his divine attributes during uh, the, the time when he was here on earth. His humanness, if you will. It, it was not, by the way, some people think, well, uh, he, he lost his divine attributes, like the fact that he knows all things. Some people say that. No, he didn't lose them. He voluntarily restricted himself. It was a voluntary thing. Uh, he, uh, he was laying aside the use of those particular attributes. Does that make sense? So remember, this, this is Jesus speaking at this time when he was here on earth. So remember the context here. So obviously, we would assume that now that Jesus is in heaven, the Bible says he's at the right hand of the Father in heaven, we would assume Jesus knows now. But certainly while he was on earth, he didn't know. The angels didn't know. It says, no one knows except God the Father. Well, then Jesus goes on to teach us about his coming. What is it going to be like? And he uses, in verses 37 through 39, he talks about the days of Noah. So he goes back to the book of Genesis. Jesus obviously believed that there was a literal person named Noah. He believes in the book of Genesis. He knows it's true. And so he he points to it and uses this as an illustration to teach this truth. So look at verse 37. Look at verse 37. What were the days of Noah like? Well, Jesus says in verse 37, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. By the way, Son of Man is Jesus here. Verse 38 says, For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So what do we learn here from what Jesus is saying? What were these days like? Well, if you look at the passage here, notice what Jesus says in verse 38. We see, first of all, that the people were just living normal, everyday lives. In the days of Noah, before the flood, this is, remember, before the flood, what were they doing? Jesus says they're eating and drinking, they're marrying, and they're giving in marriage. They're just normal things. They're living their lives. And so while Noah's building the ark, uh, interestingly enough, Peter, Peter says he was also a preacher of righteousness, so Noah's building the ark for 120 years. He's preaching. He's warning the people. And as far as we know, the people were just unconcerned. 
Can you imagine? I, what, I, I can just picture people laughing at Noah as he's preaching. He, he, they, you know, here he is. He's speaking of this coming flood. These people have never seen rain in their entire lives. It's never rained on planet Earth up to this point. Uh, much less there ever be a flood. So you can imagine these people just making fun of Noah. You know, if 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 they had an insane asylum, you know, the the guys would have come and put Noah in a white coat and locked him up in a in a room with with padded corners. You know, that's what they would have done probably. They had never seen rain, never flood. There never been no flood. So as as far as we. I understand there was probably some sort of a uh, vapor canopy over the earth, over the entire earth, which kept the earth at a kind of a constant temperature all around. And it was uh, obviously the Bible, if you read Genesis, it talks about this this dew coming and providing the moisture for the plants and for, for the animals. It, it, was, it was enough moisture for life to flourish. And because they had never seen such a disaster, they didn't believe that such a disaster could actually happen. A flood? Yeah, right. We've never seen one of those. And so therefore, they just went about their daily routines. They were unconcerned. It was business as usual until, notice Jesus says, until the day Noah entered the ark, and here it starts raining. And then they're like, oh, well... That crazy guy Noah, maybe, maybe, maybe there is something about this, this here. But then it was too late. And so the people we see in verse 38 were unaware of what was coming. They're unaware. And then what happened? Jesus says, uh, Noah enters the ark. And it's interesting in verse 39, they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. And Jesus says, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And certainly we see that often today, and it's certainly going to be that way during during the time of the tribulation, building up to Christ's return. People are just going to go about their their normal, everyday lives. They're going to continue eating and drinking and getting married, and they're not really going to care about the coming judgment. Not going to care about Jesus' return. And then... What, what happened in, in Noah's day is the sudden judgment just swept them away, and of course, everybody who wasn't in the ark died. Sudden judgment swept them away. And why did this happen? How did it happen? Well, we need to go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 6. Look at this. Verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It's a great picture of salvation. we see somebody who, who is receiving unmerited favor. It's an undeserved favor. You know, Noah was a sinner just like all the other people. But he believed God. He put his faith in God. And God bestowed his grace upon him and his family. And God saved them as well as the animals. But there is a, an, an attitude that Matthew, uh, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is trying to teach us. Jesus is trying to teach us. And 
the attitude that Jesus is saying that the, the people during the tribulation are going to need is alertness. They need alertness. And what we see is the exact opposite here. And you'll, you'll notice the word unaware in verse 39. Jesus says, they were unaware, which is the exact opposite of being alert. Jesus saying, what these people need is to be alert. Look for the signs. I'm giving you the signs. You know there is light at the end of the tunnel. I am coming back. So don't be unaware. Well, Jesus goes on to give a little illustration to kind of help us. The master teachers constantly using illustrations to help us understand here. So look what Jesus says in verse 40. Verse 40 says, Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, by the way, when you ever see a therefore, you need to ask the question, what is it therefore? Right? So you look at those the verse before, Jesus is telling you, what is the point of that little illustration? One's left, one taken. What's the point? Jesus says in verse 42, Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Stay awake. By the way, let me just say this, because I know there are some people who use this to talk about a secret rapture. Okay, This is not talking about the rapture. Okay, uh, You would have to rip it out of its context to say that this is the rapture. This is not a secret rapture. So when Jesus returns, he's talking about his return here. What's going to happen? Well, he's saying that one is going to be taken and one will be left. Well, here, here then we start getting into a discussion. All right, If you read various commentators, you'll get various opinions. So what's going on here? One's taken, one's left. All right, it, Which one is the, is one of them bad and one a good thing? And if it is, which one is the good and which is the bad, right? Well, that's the discussion we get into. Well, if you look at, we're not going to look at it right now, but later on we're going to look at Matthew 25. So the context, I think, helps to answer the question. In Matthew 25, you're probably familiar with the sheep and goat judgment. There's going to be a separation between the sheep and the goats. And that's what's going on here. The same thing. There's a separation. There's... There's, there's goats and there's sheep. They need to be separated. And Jesus is going to be the one. He's going to come. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. Well, who are the sheep and the goats? Well, they're people. Uh, the, 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 the sheep are obviously in Scripture described as believers. They're Christians. They are the elect. The goats are the unbelievers. And so Jesus is he's coming in this judgment. Uh, some are going to be taken to judgment. And the ones who are left on the earth, they're the ones who are going to enter into the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, which we call the millennium or the kingdom. So it's the exact same thing Jesus talks about in chapter 25 when he's using these figures of sheep and goats. So the ones who are left are Christ's sheep. They're the believers, the Christians. They are his redeemed people. They're the ones who are going to reign with him during the millennium. And the ones who are taken, this is not the rapture, they're taken in judgment. They're unbelievers. And so you say, well, what's the point? 
Well, Christ's return is going to interrupt people in the ordinary activities of life. And the lesson, there is, there's many lessons we need to learn, but certainly we need to learn this, that discipleship demands faithful stewardship. Discipleship demands faithful stewardship. Right? You, you to be growing in, in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You're to be more and more conformed in the image of Jesus Christ. And so that's discipleship and it demands faithful stewardship. You're a steward. Everything you, you are and you have doesn't belong to you. It belongs to King Jesus. And so the attitude that Jesus is saying that these people during the tribulation time need to have is a continual expectancy. Did you notice in verse 42, Jesus says, stay awake. Stay awake. And by the way, that's in the present tense in the Greek, which means you continually do this. Continually stay awake. Don't go to sleep. Be a faithful steward. Jesus uses another parable to to, to teach what 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 are what are these people needing? What do they need to be like as, as everything is leading up to Christ's return? So Jesus uses the parable of the unprepared householder to teach another lesson here. Look at verse 43. Verse 43. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So we see here in verse 43 that the householder, the house owner, uh, was not ready for the thief. Well, that's kind of normal, isn't it, when you think about it? I mean, how often do you actually, uh, you ever, I, I saw some comics, it was kind of, kind of funny on the internet, I saw comics where, uh, where thieves were actually sending announcements to the house owner saying, hey, I'm coming at this time on this day, and I'm going to steal your stuff, be ready. Yeah, right, I mean, thieves don't do that. Not any smart thief, anyway. Thieves don't announce when they're coming. And so, we know, by the way, that Jesus is not a thief. <laughs> Jesus doesn't steal. So what is the point that he's he's trying to teach here? Well, remember, he's talking about this generation during the time of the tribulation. So this generation living during this tribulation period is specifically told here that they will not know the exact time of Jesus appearing. But they are informed here, Jesus has informed them of certain details as to what the very signs that are going to immediately precede his coming. So in other words... They'll know that King Jesus is, well, put it into Jesus' words. They're going to know, hey, Jesus is coming. The, the, the thief is going to break into the house sometime very soon. And so they need to be prepared. That's the point. They need to be prepared. Well, some of you know my dog, my golden retriever dog, Molly. We, I purposely... Uh, we purposely wanted a dog that would could be a watchdog, but it wasn't going to scare all of you away when you come over to our house. We didn't want one of those. We didn't want one of those dogs that you know just you'd just be afraid of, and you wouldn't ever want to walk onto our property. Because I've I don't know about you, I've gone onto certain properties and I've been chased by dogs, I've been snapped at by dogs, and 
it's not very inviting. So we wanted our place to be inviting, so we, we bought a golden retriever. And, and our golden retriever, Molly, she is, she's, she's a pretty decent watchdog. She's very diligent in watching what goes on on the property. In fact, she often lays by the front door and looks out. And so we, we don't have a doorbell. And so she is our doorbell most of the time. She, she lets us know, you know, somebody's coming up to the door. So she's a, she's a good watchdog in the sense that she notices almost everything that goes on in the property. But she's not an attack dog. She's, she's quite a nice dog, in fact. Uh, so if you do come to her house, you don't need to wor- be worried about her. Uh, but I was thinking about this. What, what would she be like if, if what happens here, like in this passage, if an intruder, a thief, was actually to come into the house, how would she handle that? Well, if the intruder had food, I know what would happen. <laughs> If, if some thief actually came into my house, I mean, all he'd have to do is have food and, and, and she would immediately shut up and my dog would be the thief's best friend and let that thief steal anything he wanted to. I'm sure that's what would happen. However, if he didn't have food, all he'd have to do is just, you know, stare at her in a mean way or, or bark back at her and she'd probably run and hide and knowing her, that's just the way she is. She, she's kind of a fraidy cat in, in a way. She, she barks really loud, you know, but she's one of those that uh, is, is kind of afraid of people. And she's, she's one of those people, she even barks at me, by the way. If I'm doing something out of the ordinary, I mean, like just the other day, uh, my parents' car wouldn't start. The battery is dead. So I was pushing it. And so she looks out the window. She sees me pushing a car, and she's, and she's thinking, I've never seen that before, so I need to bark. And she did. That's the way she is. So she's very diligent in watching. But what is the best kind of a watchdog? Think about that. I mean, Jesus is exhorting these people, be watchful. But best kind of watchdog is one that doesn't just watch, right? Best kind of a watchdog is one that's ready to do something when an, an intruder comes into the house, right? You, you don't want a watchdog that's, that's going to let there and let it just stand there or go run into a closet or something and let the thief steal your stuff. Right? That's, that's not the best watchdog, is it? And so Jesus is saying, hey, that's not what I want you to be like, okay? I want you to be diligently watching, but I also want you to be ready to do something when I come back. Don't be like my dog, right? So in verse 44, we, we just let me kind of conclude this little parable by making a few points. Number one, people must constantly be ready for Christ's return. Jesus wants people to be constantly ready for his return. Well, I was thinking about that. Well, what does that mean, be ready? Well, it starts with being saved, doesn't it? Because you think about it, an unbeliever is not going to be what Paul exhorts in 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, is not going to be loving the thought of Jesus' return, are they? An unbeliever, that, that's, they're unconcerned. They, they don't love the thought of Jesus' return. They probably hate the thought of Jesus' return because then judgment day comes. And so it starts with being saved, putting our faith in Jesus Christ alone. Being ready for Christ's return starts with being saved. So my friend, if, if you're not saved, that's where it all starts, doesn't it? Being ready starts with knowing that Jesus knows you and you know Jesus and 
knowing that, that hey, he's, he's the one who's dealt with my sin, my greatest problem. And so we see here also that Christ might come at any time, and what, what's going to happen is if we're not ready, it's going to catch people off guard, just like it did in Noah's day. In Noah's day, people were caught off guard. They weren't in the ark, and therefore they died. And so those who aren't ready for Christ's return, what's going to happen? They're going to be separated in that sheep and goat judgment. The, the, un, the unsaved will be dealt with in judgment, and the believers will go into the millennium. And so the attitude that Jesus is teaching here is readiness. He wants us to be ready. Did you see that in verse 34? Or sorry, verse 44 starts with a therefore. You also must be ready. And that's a command. So again, we see all these therefores in the passage that show us the attitudes that, that, uh, that need to be of these people during this time period. So what do you do since you don't know when Christ will return? Verse 36 said, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, only God the Father. So what do you do since nobody knows? Well, the next parable that teaches, that, that Jesus teaches us is going to teach us the proper conduct since we don't know. And by the way, before we read the Bible here, let me just state this because there, there's a little warning. Let me just give you a little warning. There's a cultural barrier that you and I need to be aware of before we read the parable of the two slaves. Because a lot of times we think of slaves, and we, we, we often think of a modern context, or going back to maybe 17, 1800, so forth. And when we, we, we take modern times and implant that into Bible times, ancient times, you can end up with some problems here. All right? So let me just give you that warning. There's a cultural barrier. So don't think of modern-day slaves who, who had no privileges. During the Bible times, the number of slaves a person owned was actually a sign of status. Wealthy homes would often have dozens of slaves. In fact, there was a, I read about one Roman senator, for example, who owned 400 slaves. Slaves were allowed to own property during this time period. They, they earned wages, so they were more like an employee than, than what you might think of a slave. So they, they could own property, they earned wages, and they could also purchase their freedom if, if they had enough money. So what should you do since you don't know when Christ will return? Well, that, let's read the next parable here and see the proper conduct that Jesus is teaching. Look at verse 45. Verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and he begins to beat his fellow servants and eat, eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Interesting parable, is it not? Let's just talk about this. What do we learn here? Well, this parable is a picture of a wealthy 
householder, and he has obviously at least two slaves. So he's got multiple slaves, like many people did during Bible times. So what does he do? He leaves on, on a lengthy journey. He, he, he hasn't told anybody exactly how long he's going to be gone, so it's an, an undetermined time for his return. And so while the master's gone, he, uh, what he does is he chooses a particular slave to be in charge of the other slaves and, and to take care of, of the household, if you will. Make sure everybody's taken care of so that they can do their jobs. And so Jesus talks about the faithful slave, first of all. What do we learn about this faithful slave? Number one, verse 45, we see the faithful slave takes care of the other slaves. Uh, <clears throat> he's not mean to them like the wicked slave, and he actually does what the master told him to do. He, he obeys his master. And so number two, we see that the faithful slave carries out his master's will. Now, as you think about this, there, there's some good carryover to what we, as faithful slaves of Jesus Christ, to what we ought to be like. All right? I'm not going to talk a lot about that in detail, but certainly there's some good carryover in principles there uh, shows us what does a faithful slave of Jesus Christ look like. Well, well, you, you, you're concerned about other slaves, about other people. You're, you're concerned about obeying your master's will. And what happens is when you do that, notice this faithful slave was rewarded in verse 47. This master comes back and he says, I will set him over all his possessions. Didn't Jesus say if you're faithful in little, you'd be faithful in much? Yes, he did. So the faithful slave is, is taking care of the other slaves. He's obeying his master's will and as a result, he is rewarded. But what is the wicked slave like? Well, it's almost like the exact opposite, is it not? In verses 48 and 49, we see this wicked slave only cares for himself. He doesn't care about his other slaves. He's, uh, there, there's a number of things we see here in verses 48 and 49. Number one, he's careless, very careless. In verse 48, he actually says, hey, my master is delayed. He's not really concerned about his his master coming back. He doesn't want to be ready. He doesn't want to be prepared. He doesn't want to be alert and watchful. He's careless. He's also cruel. He's beating his fellow slaves, and he's carousing. He's getting drunk. And as a result, the wicked slave is punished when his master returns. And uh, you say, well, man, that really sounds kind of drastic, doesn't it? I mean, look. Look, I mean, the master comes back and he actually destroys this man. He kills him. He cuts him into pieces. Uh, it used to be a long time ago people would do that of uh, someone they really hated. It was, it was kind of considered the ultimate humiliation to cut someone. You, you draw and quarter them and then you send their body parts off into various parts of the region. And it was really a deterrent to, to say to other people, hey, don't be like this guy. It was setting this guy up as an example. If you, you know, you, you go against the king, for example, this is what happens to you. Right? You, you get your body parts shown around the kingdom. Right? So the master, he cuts this man into pieces. He, this guy loses his inheritance. He doesn't get the possessions. And what Jesus is ultimately teaching here, he's done this several times already, is that this guy is extremely unhappy because ultimately he's, he's condemned to eternal hell. Jesus has used that imagery several times, the weeping and, 
gnashing of teeth. That's, that's the place this guy ends up. Weeping and gnashing of teeth is this idea of, of eternal torment and sorrow and pain and suffering. That's where the guy ends up because he was not a faithful slave. He ignored his master's wishes. He did not obey his master. He was unconcerned. And so, my friend, the thrust of Jesus' warning is not simply to inform unbelievers that there is an eternal hell, but it is useful that Jesus' warning should be a motive for believing in Him in order to escape it. I'm not saying that's the only thing that that should concern us and should concern an unbeliever, uh, but certainly... Uh, hey, if someone sees what Jesus is teaching here and is concerned about it, that's a good thing. And so his appeal to believe is to believe while there's still opportunity rather than foolishly wait for some better time which, which may never come. We're not assured of tomorrow. One commentator by the name of William Barclay told an interesting story. He, he relates the, the story to really illustrate the danger of spiritual procrastination. Here's how the story goes. There is a fable which tells of three apprentice devils who were coming to this earth to finish their apprenticeship. They were talking to Satan, the chief of the devils, about their plans to tempt. And the first uh, devil said this. He says, I will tell them that there is no God. Satan said, That will not delude many, for they know there is a God. The second demon said, I will tell them that there is no hell. Satan answered, You'll deceive no one that way. Men know even now that there is a hell for sin. The third demon said, I will tell men that there is no hurry. Satan said, Go, and you will ruin men by the thousands. So the most dangerous of all delusions, the point of the story is this, that the most dangerous of all delusions is that there is plenty of time. And that's not the case. We don't know what is going to come even the rest of today, let alone tomorrow. So let's think about the conclusions from this particular parable. What do we, what do we learn? Number one, that King Jesus will return. King Jesus will return. Notice he says the master will return. That, of course, that master is an illustration of Jesus himself. We also learn that King Jesus' return will be unexpected. It will be unexpected. We, we, we know for a lot of people during the tribulation, they, they don't want Jesus to come back. They're not looking for him to come back. And they're just going to be like, the, it's going to be like the days of Noah going about their daily routines in life until Judgment Day comes. We also learn that every believer is responsible to be ready at all times. We are going to be held accountable, the Bible says. Places like Corinthians and Romans 14 will be held accountable by the way we live, what we do in our bodies while here on earth. We're not saved by good works, but the Bible says, according to Ephesians, that we are saved for good works. And what you do will be held accountable before the king. We also, learn, we also learn, according to the Bible, that God rewards. But he also punishes people at the final judgment. So not only does he reward, but there's also going to be punishment. 
and it's, it's based on our stewardship. Are we a wise and faithful steward, or are we a wicked steward? How well did they do the tasks that were actually assigned to them, right? If they didn't do the master's wishes and his will, what happened to the wicked slave? He's punished. What happened to the faithful slave? He's rewarded. So we see that faithful stewardship requires perseverance. We don't know when the master's coming exactly, and it also a faithful stewardship also requires us to be consistent, right? We don't we don't want to be like. Um, I don't know. You, you, unfortunately, I've, I think I've done this at work sometimes, where sometimes where uh, it's easy to become a people pleaser. Even though I'm a Christian, and I know my, ultimately God's my boss. Sometimes I, I know I've done this in the past, where, hey, you know, I might I might not work my best, but I know when the boss is coming around at a certain time period, you know, you kind of you step up your work when the boss is around. You know what I mean? I've done that way too many times to my shame. It's wrong, right? And so we want to be consistent. We know the master is always here. He's everywhere, right? He is coming. He could come at any moment. So we want to be persevering, but as we also want to be consistent. We also learn that there will be severe judgment for those who just live for themselves. We don't want to be like the wicked slave. He's only concerned about himself. He doesn't care about anybody else. doesn't seem to care about his master. And so those who do evil may discover that one day it's just going to be too late. It's too late to make amends. And punishment is coming. Judgment is coming. And so the attitude that seems to be prevailing from this particular parable, we've seen that word several times, is the word faithful. Uh, Jesus said it several times in the Scriptures. It's required of a steward that he be found faithful. And, And we see that word mentioned here several times in this parable as well just want to apply quickly and we'll end here. First thing that comes to my mind is, is, is Scripture wants us to believe something. Jesus wants you to believe something. Clearly, Jesus wants you to believe that, that He is going to return one day. Right? So sometimes when we apply things, there's something that, that the Bible and God wants us to believe. Sometimes there's things that uh, He wants us to think. Sometimes there's things that God wants us to do. But Clearly, Jesus wants us to believe that he's going to return. And if you believe that, then that belief is actually going to have consequences in your life. It will affect your life. I mean, you think about this. What were the very last words of Jesus in the Bible? You read Revelation chapter 22, you find Jesus says, I am coming quickly. I'm coming quickly. The very last words that Jesus ever says in the Bible, in Revelation 22, is I am coming quickly. Quickly, we need to believe it. Jesus is coming soon. But number two, we need to be ready at all times. Now, Jesus was talking to a group of people who would be alive during the tribulation. I personally don't believe I'm going to be there. I believe the uh, if you believe in a pre-trib rapture or even a even a mid-trib rapture, you're not you're not going to be alive at this time period. So you need to be ready. Even if, you, even if you're not going to be at the end of the tribulation, you need to be ready for the rapture. Jesus said in John 24, Hey, I go away. I'm coming back. And when I do, when I do come back, I'm going to take you to be with myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So be ready at all times. 
Number three, every believer is a slave of Jesus Christ. And because of that, therefore, you and I are obligated to serve Him in every way possible. We do what the Master wishes, whatever His will is. And so every believer has been given a divine stewardship. And by you understand what a steward is? steward is, is one who doesn't own anything. He just looks after the owner's possessions. So we've been given a divine stewardship. We, the Master owns it. We're to look after it. And we're responsible for that. And so we're to be responsible with, with what we've been given here on earth. And in that stewardship, uh, a steward's to be faithful. A steward's to be sensible, wise. Notice in this passage it mentions that this, this guy is faithful and wise. And so your very life, your breath, your energy, your talents, your spiritual gifts, all those things and, and more, all the good things the Bible says come from God, the Father. He entrusts those to us for a purpose. It's not for you. Not to bring glory to yourself, but to be used for His service and His glory and the good of His people. The last point I want to make is this. I, I don't, I've heard this many times when I was growing up. I don't know where it comes from, but, but there's this saying that says this, that live as though King Jesus is coming back today, but plan as though He's not coming back for a hundred years. I mean, if you read, read the Bible, the apostles thought Jesus would come back very, very soon. And it, it seems like at least some of them thought Jesus would come back during their lifetime, and of course He didn't. But that's good advice. So you live as if Jesus is coming back today, but plan as if He's not coming back for 100 years. So here's the reality. right? Life is fragile. Life is fleeting. And by fragile, I mean you and I are but dust. The Bible says that. God knows we're but dust. I mean, it just it doesn't take much for us to be taken out of this life. Right? number of things could happen to us. Life's fleeting. And so this is the message Jesus is teaching us here in the Olivet Discourse. And therefore, it's incumbent upon us. We've got to be ready to meet King Jesus. Whether that is, by the way, at the end of our life, whether, whether death takes us home or, or uh, the end of the age, whichever comes first, doesn't matter. Either way, we need to be ready. And there, there's a balance here that also. I don't know if you picked up on this. Balanced discipleship involves both an immediate as well as a long-term readiness. Jesus said, be ready. But it's, there's this immediate readiness because it could happen any moment. But it's a long-term thing because, because as these slaves were, as they were acting, it could be a long time. And so, balanced discipleship involves both the immediate as well as long-term readiness. So until the, the end actually comes, your responsibility, my responsibility is then to be faithful in serving King Jesus. So we live as though King Jesus is coming back today, but plan as if it's a hundred years from now. 